This is Boardwalk Talk, a podcast of interviews with people doing important work and who have interesting spiritual journeys to share. My name is Jeff Nowers, host of this podcast. I'm also an Anglican priest based at St. Aidan's Parish in the East End of Toronto, just a block away from the beach boardwalk. Welcome to the conversation. Where does a person go when they are released from prison? Where do they find housing and a community of support? Eileen Henderson is a Christian who has dedicated her life to restorative justice. For many years, she was coordinator of Circles of Support and Accountability, or COSA, which is a reintegration program that holds inmates with histories of sexual offending accountable for the harm they've caused and it supports their reintegration at the end of their sentences. I recently spoke with Eileen Henderson about restorative justice and how it has shaped her life. She currently sits on the board of Restorative Justice Housing Ontario, or RJHO, and I began our conversation by asking her exactly what her work with RJHO entails. Uh, it's a little varied with RJHO. Uh, the organization started approximately two years ago, um, came out of a group of individuals, I think over a long period of time, uh, talking about the need for housing in Toronto. And fortunately, we were incredibly supported and also pushed by the chair of our board, Jim Harbell, to stop talking about it and to do something. And so the board at the present, we also have an advisory group that surrounds us. We're a pretty active board, pretty hands-on board, uh, engaged both in decision-making, but also in engaging with the residents of the of our housing units that we presently have, uh, doing a variety of things. So it's a little bit of everything, uh, mm. policy and decision-making, as well as hands-on connecting especially during COVID when our initial thought about bringing volunteers into the housing units to connect with residents and to be really a pivotal part of who we are and what we do simply hasn't been possible. What, what exactly is the work that uh, RJHO does? Again, RJHO is established as, as, being able to offer transitional housing, transitional being up to four years worth of housing for uh, initially men, and we're also looking at now moving into having a unit, a house for women, coming out of the correctional system. So often when folks return to the community post-incarceration, especially if they've had a long period of incarceration, although that's not necessarily the case. Um, They have lost either ties with the community, bridges have been burnt with community members. Uh, They're not able to return or shouldn't even be returning to their former place of residence. And the need for housing is really important. Stability Mm -hmm. around housing is a key factor in preventing recidivism. Uh, So, That was certainly the impetus around uh, why we began to look at what are the housing needs of in the men and women returning to the community and how's the community being responsive to that and for that. So when it was, you said it was organized about 
a couple of years ago. That's not that's not very long ago. Were you? We're pretty were, new. Yeah, yeah. Were you yourself part of the the, the founding? I think a group of us who'd been having long conversations over a period of time were part of the part of the founding um, the founding group for RGHO. So certainly right from the beginning, and lots of us were having calls. Harry Nye, who was community chaplain with Corrections Canada when they still had that term, uh, was also involved. Others from circles of support and accountability were some of the housing agencies and shelter folks were involved as we began to say, look at, well, we hadn't even begun to look at, we'd known for a long time, uh, as well as folks from John Howard, that resources for folks returning to the community were pretty few, especially when landlords uh, were asking, you know, do you have a criminal record? So if, if and oh, I was going to say, Jeff, sorry for interrupting. Yeah. And most of us, I was certainly tired of taking folks that I worked with um, and supported through circles of support and accountability to look at places to live that both would take them, ask no questions, and be within their price range around what they could afford on Ontario Works or ODSP. Mm -hmm. And thinking to myself, you know, I have to look like this is a great place to live. And I know I would not last here for more than five minutes. How, how are you, like you personally, and, and how are, how is RGHO in contact with, with people who have just been released from prison? Like, how do you, how do you get in contact with, with, with people who, who need your services? Or do they contact you? It's a little bit of both. So uh, we have some primary organizations that have been referring to us. John Howard uh, of Toronto, John Howard Organization mm -hmm. of Toronto is one. We're in contact with some of the prison chaplains who are connecting with folks before they return, well, during their incarceration, and then before they return to the community. Uh, we're in contact with parole officers from the federal system as well as the provincial system uh, and one of the chaplains at the Salvation Army Halfway House Button Lodge, the community um, center that they have there has been a strong referral of folks that they know who are coming out. One of the the pieces we want to make sure this is a good fit for individuals coming out and not just a solely a last-ditch effort. I need housing, so any housing will do. We do have a code of conduct that people uh, need to adhere to. The houses are dry. There's anticipation. It's Folks are involved in community activities, uh, a dinner once a month together, looking after the house together, engaging with each other in respectful ways. Uh, so we want to make sure it's a good fit and really value the idea that folks are coming because they have a referral from from an org another organization how many how many people would you be would rjho be be helping out at any given time like what would the total number of people be that you're you're working with to to try to find housing at the moment um, and you've asked at a, a really good time in our development. We started very slowly. We've just been, we've been an organization now for about two years. We opened our first residence this time last year, right at the beginning of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have four individuals living in, four men living in that residence. Uh, 
We have two in another apartment unit. And as of the 1st of March, uh, we will be opening another house with the potential of five for five residents there. So not a huge number. Um, we wanted to make sure we were moving slowly and could walk before we ran, uh, but we are showing certainly incremental growth. And we do have a waiting list of folks who are, who are now getting to know of the service, wanting to connect. There's now a bit more uh, movement in the system as well as people are being released to the community. And, and so we're beginning to build, to build both our network and partnerships, as well as um, certainly our inventory around units that we have available. Now you mentioned that you you opened up your your first residence. So is that how, how does uh, how does that work? Is that is that uh, owned by RGHO or or is there a, a partnership? Uh, tell me about the process of, of how that how that came to be. It would be great if we had a formula around that, but we don't. Uh, so about a year ago in December, a year ago this past December, RJHO hired their first program director, which was really pivotal for us. Part-time program director who'd had his own experience uh, with, the, with the Correctional Service of Canada. He had... Um, done his time, come out, was was putting his life back on track, seemed to be a perfect person to model the values of restorative justice. And it was through him and other board members, so Joseph and other board members, simply looking through, you know, the newspaper, although people don't use the newspaper very often, Kijiji, all of the opportunities and potentials for looking for housing rentals. Mm. And literally going door-to-door viewing houses that were for rent, talking about the views and vision of RJHO, and then finding a willing landlord who was willing to take the risk. Oh, I see. So you've, you've, you've found a landlord, obviously. We have found several landlords now. One is a apartment management that's been willing to rent us an apartment unit. And now two landlords who are being willing to say, yes, we understand what you do. And we're willing to take the risk of housing, um, housing folks with a criminal justice background in our house. When you're in contact with with landlords like that, that have that kind of vision and, and, and believe in the work that you're doing. I mean, that must, that must be very heartening. It must, it must give you just a, a boost of, of energy and, and affirmation in your work. It's, it's been incredibly life-giving to know that there are folks who are willing to take that risk and are willing to understand that, um, that further isolation of people does not enhance community safety. It simply reduces community safety. And that people who've done their time, individuals who've done their time and are wanting to make change uh, need the opportunity to, to be able to do that in the community. I, I, I sense that this is, uh, this is uh, this kind of work has been long standing with you. And I know that you, before you were involved with RGHO, you were, involved in uh, circles of support and accountability. Um, yes. What, what did you do with that organization? What was your work and what, what did your work entail? Um, I 
ended up with circles of support and accountability or landed on circles of support and accountability coming out of a role as a volunteer with Toronto Community Chaplaincy, which uh, was working out of the Keel Centre, a federal halfway house, and responding to the needs of, um, at that point, men returning to the community post-incarceration. And so circles of support and accountability, which essentially began in 1994, um, was, was a community need response to how do we support, how do we support and hold accountable individuals who are returning to the community after long periods of incarceration for sexual offending. And so the role, my role with, um, I would use the word circles, other people use the word COSA as a short form for circles of support and accountability. The role of a circle was to pull together um, screen trained volunteers from the community along with a staff person to support and hold accountable an individual returning to the community, daily contact, uh, working with them to assess what their needs were, often around housing, employment, uh, stable income of some sort, generally OW or ODSP, and to, to help them as they address the issues that led them to, to their offending in the first place. Certainly a commitment, a double commitment to no more victims and no one is disposable. Were you, were you part of the, the, the founding of Circles of Support and Accountability, or did you come along afterwards? I came along afterwards, although I was on the board of Toronto Community Chaplaincy and a volunteer, so heard all those early stories, and then ended up, when I became fully involved with Circles, uh, connecting with the two initial men, one in Hamilton and one in, in Toronto, who were sort of the founding, what we would call core members, that, that spearheaded the concepts of Circles. But it, I mean, it's a small community, Jeff. So Harry Nye, who was initially the founder, uh, the first person who who took on the support of Charlie Taylor and Hamilton, he was he's also on the board of RJHO, mm-hmm. and Hugh Kierkegaard, who was the impetus around welcoming Ray Boudreau to the city of Toronto. Uh, in November of 1994, still maintained in close contact. He's a regional chaplain on the the east coast of Canada. So it's a pretty small community in many ways. Yeah, small community, but doing incredible work. Well, I think we would say we've, we've been changed as much as the folks that we've connected with have been changed. How so? When you, when you say that, what, what do you mean by, by being changed? How... Can you describe the change? Um, I think for me personally, certainly there's a strong community of people that we intersect with, that um, we walk with, we support, who, who are in relationship with each other. We see people more than the, as Helen Prejean would say, the sum total of their worst offenses. Uh, we hear behind the stories that people have. And so it's been a huge learning experience and growing experience to see to see people more than the labels that they arrive with. And certainly um, it's provided an opportunity to see God's grace at work in pretty unique ways. You, you mentioned uh, you were involved in chaplaincy even before that. Uh, what sort of work were you doing? 
I was involved in chaplaincy in a couple of levels. So, um, oh, a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago, sort of mid to late 80s, I was invited to sit on a federal interfaith committee um, that that was part of the federal chaplaincy program of Correctional Service of Canada. It was a national committee that met um, on a fairly regular basis that advised the commissioner of corrections around the role of chaplaincy in federal prisons across Canada. Mm. And so was invited to sit on that committee and had came into that because of a past experience a number of years earlier in a trip to Dorchester Penitentiary at the invitation of the chaplain there for some of us to come and hang out for a week in the chapel and to do some services and programming. And, I, and my life was profoundly impacted by that experience, both by the um, men that we met at the institution by the work of the chaplain himself, his name's Pierre, Pierre Lard, and the role of that community, the power of community in that place. So I was invited was some... The, was, was the, sorry to interrupt you. Was that the first time, I'm just curious, that you had ever entered a prison? It was the first time I'd ever entered a federal prison. Okay. Um, interestingly, my father was uh, uh, worked at the Imperial Reformatory in Guelph growing up. So we'd ha I'd had some idea of, of the role of the Guelph Reformatory, certainly as a child growing up in the city of Guelph. And in my first jobs working, I worked um, actually with an organization called Youth for Christ, which worked, and the program I worked in called Youth Guidance worked with kids on a diversion program from the court system, but often they would have loved ones inside provincial facilities, and I would go and do some visiting for them and with them. But certainly the opportunity to spend a week essentially at Dorchester Penitentiary on the East Coast was my first real engagement uh, with the federal prison system. But through the Federal Interfaith Committee, there were certainly other opportunities to go and view chaplaincy services, engage with folks in federal prisons. But out of that, I felt if I was sitting on a Federal Interfaith Committee advising around uh, spiritual needs of men and women who were incarcerated, I should probably in get involved in a local level. And simply because Kingston was too far to travel to or Warkworth near Peterborough was too far to travel to, I decided to volunteer with Toronto Community Chaplaincy, which was working um, with federal inmates returning to the, the GTA area. And so was ended up being involved on their board, but also in building one-to-one -one relationships, going into institutions for Christmas services that Toronto Chaplaincy was doing, and meeting offenders when they were returning to the community, and in some cases getting involved with supporting their families in the community. You know, I, I, I'm uh, I'm fascinated by by everything that you're saying, and uh, you know, you mentioned that uh, that visit to the to the Dorchester. Uh, correctional facility uh, was was really transformative, kind of a, it opened up a door for you into a whole other world. Um, but it, it sounds to me like, like the, there was something going on even before that you were you were driven to this kind of work, or you had this sort of concern early on, like, you know, your father was, 
maybe through your father's work. Can, can you can you think back through your childhood? Was this always uh, something that was was an issue for you, uh, the, the issue of incarceration and, and restorative justice? I think I think Jeff marginalization. Yeah. Issues of marginalization were more an issue than incarceration. I certainly knew that there were um, certainly knew that there were folks who were incarcerated. Mm-hmm. I suspect that really growing up, certainly grew up in a, a Christian environment, Christian household. But probably the pivotal places for me growing up. Uh, came through an aunt and uncle who were who were more involved didn't talk openly about justice issues but did talk about a more expansive view of faith mm. and how faith should be intersects interacting and intersecting with daily life than the faith environment of um of my household and so um they were they were quite yeah, they provided a great base for opening up a view of faith and the role of faith in intersecting with daily life. And interestingly enough, um, they were Anglican. My uncle was Desmond Hunt, who was a bishop, one of the bishops of Toronto. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And when I moved to Toronto, I was at Church of the Messiah. That was the church I chose to go to, uh-huh. partially because... Um, I actually did live in the area, but also because of their view when the church burned down, they chose to do a different route in responding to the young men who'd been part of setting that fire. They wanted to support them, hear their story, and um, try and include them in the community rather than ostracize them. And so that was pretty pivotal. Um, I went to Camp Koinonia, which is an Anglican camp, as a as a preteen and then teen and then counseled there for a couple of years and the folks I connected with there also gave a different more expansive view around areas of social justice and then when I was at university in Guelph connecting with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Group also gave a very provided a very expansive view of um, of the kind of intersections that faith that faith should have in living your life and in relationship to others. So, so faith, your, your faith journey has very much uh, fueled your, your work with restorative justice. Yes, I would, I would think it has. And certainly the work of Henry Nowen has been pivotal in that. You know, when you, when you think about the, the, the state of restorative justice right now, and, and where things are at right now with our, with with prisons, uh, and with with the whole carceral model of, of dealing with 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 people who have committed crimes and offenses, there's a you know there's a you're aware of this there's a, there's a movement uh, called you know no more prisons or, or prison abolition. Where where do you stand on that? I think that that's a. I, th- I would say, Jeff, I'm not a prison abolitionist. I truly believe there are some people, not many, who are absolutely not able to live in community with other people. And I would truly say they're not, certainly not many people. I think, I believe we, we over, um, we incarcerate way too many people. We should not be incarcerating people around mental health issues, around addictions, 
I think our whole system needs to be redone. I'm not quite sure how that should look, but I do know that when we ostracize people, when we decide to remove people from society and simply lock them up and put them away, they do not return as better citizens. They do not return with greater skills in how to interact with the larger community or how even to live with themselves. So I think we need to do a, a lot more work around how do we engage? How do we support at-risk families or families who are walking through issues with, um, with family members in different and better ways? How do we support folks who are experiencing homelessness, addictions, marginalization of every kind? Um, and so it's not, I don't think it's an either or, no prisons and, and nothing else, I think lots of things have to be worked at together it's not going to be an easy answer and it's going to take a long period of time but i think it begins with people with all of us thinking that simply pushing people out to the margins is not going to make things better for everyone i think we often think in an especially our Western societies where we're pretty individualistic in our way of thinking that as long as my world's okay, it doesn't matter about anybody else. And that's just not the case. We have to be, we have to be certainly um, more global, even more community oriented in our way of thinking, you know, what I do impacts other people, what they do impacts me. How do we make this better for everyone? I've had the opportunity to spend some time with women who are returning to the community, Um, huge mental health issues that never should have had them incarcerated in the first place. Hmm. I think we look for easy answers and incarceration is an easy answer in many cases with very long-term ramifications. You know, it's, it's almost analogous to a, to a parent who's who's dealing with a, with a child who's acting up or misbehaving and the quick resort is just to simply spank your child and you know an immediate show of, of anger or frustration and and you you whack your child get them to stop what they're doing but what about taking the time to sit down with with your child instead of resorting to to physical corporal punishment to sit down and and you know uh, patiently uh, resort to other means of correction, and I, you know, I, it's kind of like that with our, with our whole criminal justice system. You know, it, it's easy just to throw somebody behind bars, and when the prisons get full, you build more. Uh, yeah. But there, there has to be uh, an alternative way of pursuing pursuing justice that that is restorative, because otherwise, as you say. Uh, people are going to get out in due course and they're going to be worse off than when they went in. Yeah, there'll be absolutely quick fixes um, are pretty time, (laughs) time related. They're quick fixes for the moment, but not quick fixes for a long-term solution. And certainly folks returning to the community, circles of support and accountability initially started as a response to what we would call warrant expiry offenders. So at that point, men who'd come to the very last day of their prison sentence had had um, no opportunity, little opportunity because of their history of offending or community response to their returning to the community were held to the last day of their sentence in an institution. So at eight o'clock, 
you know, on a Friday morning. We're in the care of and keeping of Correctional Service of Canada. At 8.01, we're standing outside the gates of Kingston Prison or any of the prisons across the country. And there was no one who was responsible for them or to them. And they were absolutely on their own to figure things out. And yet in our way of thinking in the community, keeping people to their last sentence uh, feels so much better than allowing people to have a transitional release to the community through either through parole, uh, with hacks in place so that the release is transitional. And so we think the quick solution, the easy solution is just lock them up till they till they get out and then good luck with that. And we know for ourselves that never works very well if we're not supported. All of us have our own support communities and we know we work best and better when um, we're known, we're connected with other people in the community feel. If we feel this way, why shouldn't others have those needs as well? Maybe I can just ask you this in, in, um, in conclusion. Um, you mentioned a few minutes ago that, that uh, we need to do hard work. And I, I was thinking about the we when you when you made that statement, because I think we is is pretty all encompassing. It's not just uh, our elected representatives or or people that we think are out there on the ground uh, doing, you know, uh, restorative justice work directly. Uh, but but it's it's we meaning all of us. And I'm, I'm wondering, how do you see uh, the average everyday person who may not have any connection to life in prisons and, and people in prisons? How, what can they do to, to help forge a, a path forward to a, to a better uh, a better envisioning of of uh, of justice? That's a good question, a hard question. I laid it on you heavy there. Uh, thanks, Jeff. <laughs> um, I think certainly as people of faith, I think it's really important for all of us, for me, so I'll speak just about me, to respond to everyone I see as someone who's created in the image of God. And somehow, sometimes that's more difficult to see than others, but really wanting to look for that place where I see um, that person as created in the image of God, loved by God, and starting at that that point, at least for me, not just some people, but everyone, and working to see beyond the label and beyond the history. I think, um, I think it's a way of beginning to look at people differently. Certainly when we were connecting with faith communities about re being responsive to the, to the needs of men and women returning to the community, there's always the encouragement, at least hopefully there was always the encouragement from our part to see this person not just as a project, but as a person who had a lot to offer and bring to the community as well. So a sense of a mutuality of learning and being able to see people as what they're also willing to bring to the relationship, not just, you know, I can give them my, I can give them a gift card to Tim Hortons, I can give them a gift card to Walmart, I'll clean up my closet and give them food, give them clothing to wear. But how what gifts does this person have to 
give bring back to us what do they have to offer because they're huge amounts of um skills and learnings and gifts that folks can um that bring to any relationship and so i I do think it's a Western, more Western point of view. I've had the opportunity to spend a fair bit of time in Rwanda, connecting with a restorative justice group. And interestingly, through the same prison chaplain that invited us to Dorchester <laughs> uh, X number of years ago. But how do we find a mutuality and relationships? So it's not simply I give to you, you take from me, and I feel good about my giving. Right. And we can do that in any in even small ways. How do we do that in terms of our neighborhood, in terms of the, the services that our neighborhood offers for uh, around homelessness or, or food security, food insecurity? How do we begin to, to see people not as the other, but as one of us? And I think that's a very basic way to start. And maybe yeah. if COVID's taught us nothing is we really do need each other. And I know it's not an easy fix to a system, but, um, because there are lots of things. Certainly prison and corrections um, provide a lot of jobs. Uh, they give us a false sense of security. So how do we be, begin to use relational um, opportunities as beginning to meet our security needs? Um, one thing, a friend who runs a similar program to Circles of Support and Accountability out West had t-shirts made up that we've all been really wanting to get and haven't been able to access yet. And I think the t-shirt simply says addressing crime one relationship at a time. And it's not huge, it's not dealing with systems, but at least for each of us, for me, um, it's around building relationships, building authentic mutual relationships that is something at least I can do, as well as, you know, connecting with my local MP, my MLA to talk about. So what's going on at Maplehurst? How can the community engage? What do we do about incarceration? How do we respond to people in prison getting the vac getting a vaccine? Uh, all of those kinds of questions. How do we begin to view people differently? And, you know, building one relationship at a time, that that in itself could serve to prevent future crimes from even happening. You never know, uh, somebody's life might be unraveling in a certain way and uh, a person may need the kind of relationship to, to keep them focused so that their life doesn't unravel any, any further. Absolutely, and it's not a surefire guarantee we can't say if this person has an authentic relationship, a meaningful relationship, then nothing will happen in the future. But yeah. certainly research shows us that the fewer relationships, the fewer authentic relationships, healthy pro-social relationships a person has, the greater likelihood there is to, um, to move down a path that's not healthy and ultimately puts them in jeopardy and unfortunately victimizes people around them. You know, you've, you've given me a lot of food for thought, and uh, I hope anyone listening to this will, uh, will listen to what you have to say very, very carefully. So I want to I thank you for, for everything you've, uh, you've shared with us today. Well, thanks, Jeff. It's, um, it's been great to connect with you. Well, there you have it. Another episode of Boardwalk Talk. We have many more episodes lined up, so join us next time for more conversation. For more information about St. Aidan's Parish, 
please visit www.saintaidensinthebeach.com. S-T-A-I-D-A-N-S, in the beach, all one word, dot com. I'm Jeff Nowers. Thanks for being part of Boardwalk Talk.